This evening, we want to take a look at where we left off a little bit last week. We'll go through that very quickly, and then we'll move on to another, another area. Last week, we began to discuss 1 Timothy 1, 8, and 9. The law is good if a man use it lawfully. The law is not made for a righteous man. The text in the background, we discussed this last week, in particular verse 4, because in verse 4 Paul speaks of false teachers who were influenced by fables and endless genealogies. They preferred fables, of course, to the truth and to uh, uh, faith, of course. They favored genealogies instead of the gospel. And such raised questions, void of value, and such impeded a godly edification resting squarely upon the fundamentals of the faith. Timothy, we know, was instructed to avoid these fatal falsehoods. And in verse 5, Paul presents the threefold aim of the charge or the commandment, an obvious allusion to to the charge of faithful gospel proclamation, gospel preaching, preaching the truth and nothing but the truth. We made this observation last week and it is obvious from this background that we discussed last week and the contents of verses 8 and 9 that Paul is speaking here of the Mosaic Law. Some misuse it. Paul called for a correct employment of it. Another point to keep in mind about this is that Paul um, appraised uh, the um, Mosaic Law as being good. It served a good purpose for a worthwhile time, a worthwhile purpose. However, that purpose was never to foster fables, to generate genealogies, quarrels, or to warrant any weight at all in these, those areas. Paul made an apostolic, let me move the slide now. Paul made an apostolic um, plea for the law to be used lawfully. And those Judaizers we mentioned last week used it unlawfully. Timothy and his fellow Christians at Ephesus were to use it lawfully. Legitimate employment of the Mosaic law recognized its purpose, its limitations, and its point of of, uh, Termination, of course, at Calvary. We also mentioned about, uh, you can mention about the design of the Mosaic Law. And any law has, an, has the ungodly and unrighteous man in mind, not the upright man. So those are the, some of the closing comments that we need to make concerning that particular, um, uh, that particular text. Let's take a look this evening at... 1 Timothy 3.11. We've often heard this in, in conversations. I know I have over the years. Who are the wives of this passage? And do we have deaconesses today? I think this is kind of, a, kind of an interesting topic to take a look at. There we go. Um, the bottom line is we don't have deaconesses today. But we want to take a little closer look at this um, this verse in Ephesians six twelve, uh, this evening. Um, let me go back. Here we go. Um, the primary purpose of First Timothy 
um, 3, 11, I believe is to set forth qualifications for elders and deacons. And in that precise order, elders and deacons. This chapter has 16 verses. 12 of these verses, 75% of the chapter, deal directly with the uh, stipulation of these qualifications. Yet, amidst the apostolic uh, instructions that we have here, uh, eldership, deaconship, qualifications, the inspired scribe says something of a group of women. The King James Version says, Even so must their wives be grave, not slanders, sober, faithful in all things. 1 Timothy 3.11. Now, I think that can apply to every woman that's a Christian, obviously. The American Standard Version renders the verse, Women, in like manner, must be grave, not slanders, temperate, faithful in all things. When we... Uh, and the first qualification listed for an elder, of course, and uh, this beyond reproach, basically the same sense as the word translated uh, above reproach, and refers to having good reputation. A deacon needs a good reputation inside and out as well. In verse 11, the word translated woman, plural form of this word, is also the word for wives. The New American Standard Bible has women, and uh, as well as a number of other versions, such as the, well, yeah, the American Standard. Many translations have wives, King James Version, New King James Version, and the English Standard Version, which indicates that the passage is talking about the wives of deacons. Since the three, uh, since the next verse continues the qualifications of deacons, it seems reasonable then that this verse is included um, in those qualifications. But someone may ask, why were not elders' wives mentioned? Well, I think the answer may be that the nature of a deacon's work makes it more likely that his wife will be perhaps directly involved in his responsibilities for example, in matters of like feeding the poor and caring for the widows. An interpretation growing in popularity is that the women in verse 11 were a special class of official church servants called deaconesses. This is getting to be more and more popular, I think, in some areas of the church in this world. While perhaps that may be possible, we have, no, we have to wonder why, if this is the case, there are that they're treated in such a casual way. Five verses of qualifications for deacons and only one verse for the so-called deaconesses. Let's look again at this verse. It could be also pointed out that while overseers are specifically named in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 as, as are deacons in chapter uh, 3, eight and, verse 8 and 12, There is no corresponding designation for deaconesses at all in verse 11. We have insufficient evidence to justify the appointment of a special group of women called deaconesses. That having been said, probably every congregation of the Lord's church, including the university congregation here, 
We have a small army, I'd say almost a large army, of female servants doing everything from serving as secretary to teaching classes for children to keeping the building clean from time to time, uh, using the broad meaning of deacon, which means servant. These could be brought uh, thought of as deaconesses, although they usually do not wear that title. And we have no authority for that. Even if it should be decided to designate some women as deaconesses, we must keep in mind that we are talking about serving, not having oversight and authority over the church in any way. Paul and Timothy and the congregation at Ephesus probably knew exactly who these women were. We know who our women are. Women that prepare food whenever there's a funeral for the family. Women that prepare um, the things to take to our, our elderly, our widow ladies or men, or whatever the case might be. But Paul here and Timothy and the congregation at Ephesus had a group of women like this, just like we have. But we do not uh, know who they were. The word likewise plus the positive of the verse necessitates a close relationship with the word deacon. Perhaps the best way to resolve the issue and to think of uh, them as, as the assistants, if you would please, to the congregation, to the deacons, to the other elders, whether their own wives or other female helpers were involved. When a deacon is given the responsibility for some area of work, he often needs to fulfill that responsibility uh, as, as quickly and as efficiently as possible. Further, the kind of help he needs is often supplied by godly women sometimes. And we as elders often, of course, communicate with our army of women, if you please, to do certain things for the congregation. Uh, and of course, from time to time, deacons assist the elders in, in some things. So regardless of who these women were, Paul said that they should possess certain qualities. They were to be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Dignified, of course, uh, denotes a very serious-minded individual whose life commands respect. Melissa's gossip uh, from the Greek word slanderer is here. And few things are more detrimental to the harmony of the church than gossip and slander. And the short list continues with temperate, being temperate, uh, which, of course, self-control. That's what it means, and faithful in all things. And of course, that can apply to every Christian woman. Let's go a little further here. <clears throat> Were these women the wives of elders, of deacons, of both elders and deacons, or specifically selected female servants for various undertakings of the church? I believe it will be observed very quickly when we look at this that in the King James Version, the words must there, must there, here, of course, is italicized. This means that they are supplied, that they are supplied words by the translators. The King James translators evidently understood the passage to refer to the wives of deacons. And that's what I believe, and I believe that is the consensus of my audience this evening as well. So, with all that being said, 
the qualifications here, the, the, the things that have been set forth, depictions of elsewhere that we find carry no authoritative commandments, positions of leadership within the church of these women. Now, it is true that Phoebe in Romans 16, 1 and 2, is styled a servant of the church. The Greek word here, employed by the female form of the word deacon, in the margin of the American Standard Version, it has the word deaconesses. Thayer defines the term to mean a woman to whom the care of either poor or sick women was entrusted. When Paul wrote to the Philippian congregation, he addressed the epistle to the membership with its bishops, elders, and deacons, Philippians 1.1. It was not addressed to the membership of the bishops, elders, deacons, and deaconesses. It was not. We have no official, official deaconesses today. We have women who serve, but not as official deaconesses. Brother Guyan Woods states, and I quote, There's no support here or elsewhere in the sacred writings for the practice engaged in or by some religious bodies of appointed women as official deaconesses. There is no support here nor elsewhere in the scripture for the denominational practice of having official deaconesses in the church. But many congregations have faithful sisters, especially qualified, to whom the elders turn when needs arise, and they arise often, which neither they nor the deacon are suited to do. So, we have no official deaconesses today. And I believe that to be true. So, I don't believe it's right to use that word. It is right to, of course, continue to, to um, work with our ladies that volunteer to do things that elders uh, fumble about and cannot do, and deacons the same way. But we as an eldership here at the University Church appreciate far, far more than you think all of the ladies in this congregation. We appreciate the ladies that help one-on-one with other women. We appreciate the ladies that help as a group with events such as supplying food and organizing things uh, after a funeral, food for the family. We appreciate the ladies that teach in our Bible classes, uh, teach the children. Men are not adapt to that. We appreciate the women, godly women, Christian women in this congregation that sacrifice and work for the Lord in doing things that many times we don't know about. So to call a group of women, this is our el- these are our elders, these are our deacons, and this is these are the deaconesses. That is completely wrong. Just forget about those deaconesses; they're servants, just like all of us. Let's go on. Let's go on. Let's take a look at Ephesians six twelve. Who and what are the principalities, powers, and rulers? of darkness and the spiritual wickedness in high places. We've read that verse, we've seen that verse so many times, 
Let's take a look and see what we have here. And I'll put some scripture up here on the board for your use. One thing about it, neither Jesus nor his apostles ever won converts by misrepresenting the Christian religion. They never held out glowing promises to prospective Christians that conversion would simply mean a simple life of pleasure and relaxation or popularity. They never did. And neither do we. Living a Christian life, in many cases, is hard. We have many temptations that come our way. People were already, people were always told that there are heavy tasks involved in being a Christian. The battle against Satan is never represented as being an easy one. Man, men, I should say, were made aware that it took all there was in them, plus the help of God, to win the ultimate victory. So then, Paul admonished in Ephesians 6.11, put on the whole armor of God, that you may resist or be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Notice how Paul makes Christians knowledgeable of the enemies. The battle is not just against other men, flesh and blood, a term which always denotes the human uh, family in contrast to the divine. Peter, for instance, had discovered the marvelous truth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, but the flesh and blood, or humankind, had not made uh, had not made the revelation. But God, in Matthew six six excuse me sixteen seventeen, flesh and blood, here, however, does not refer to just men, but particular ones who oppose the gospel. There are wicked men, without scruples full of deceptions, who would use any means to prevent the promises of the gospel from being realized by the believer. Two armies meet on a battlefield, but behind each of these armies is a government whose plans, whose ideologies and preparations have gone to make the armies possible. So wicked men whom Christians see and know oppose their progress. But behind the wicked men are unseen powers of enormous power and cunning. If the Christian knows these, he will probably be able to assess the power and strength of his enemy. Behind the evil forces in the world today, the world rulers of this darkness. Jesus called Satan the ruler of of this world. Let me make sure I've got my correct. Um, let me go ahead and let's see here. Ephesians. Okay, we'll leave it right there. We're going to go. Whoops, let's go back one. Yeah. There we go. Jesus called Satan the ruler of the, a ruler of this world. John fourteen thirty. And Paul called Satan the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4. The world is in darkness because of the presence and power of Satan, 
because he's here. He's in this world. And when Jesus appeared to Saul on, uh, of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, Saul was told of his mission to the Gentiles. And his mission to the Gentiles was to open their eyes and turn them from the darkness to the light and from the power of Satan unto God. Acts 26, 18. Behind the darkness of this world is Satan's power. And the only way to penetrate, brothers and sisters, that power, of course, was to allow the light of the gospel to shine in it. While they are called the spiritual hosts of wickedness, they are simply spiritual elements of wickedness. The word host is really not found in the Greek. So um, the uh, Christian is not merely the human beings he can see, but the power of Satan, which he cannot see, but which is still very real and very, very deceptive. Christians, therefore, who know the full power of their enemy, need to not clench or hide in fear. Christians have, have behind them a greater power. We have the power of God. Jesus was sent to the world, specifically in John, 1 John 3, 8, to destroy the works of the devil. The Christian will not and cannot fail if he remains true to God. Let the battle rage, but in the end, the victory belongs to Christ, and it belongs to those that are Christians, believers in Christ. So there are, we know the evil, we may see evil, but there is power behind that evil in this world. We need to know and educate ourselves so that we can deal with these things. If we know the Bible, that is step number one. If we do not know the Bible, then we do not know how to defend the Bible. <clears throat> I have a neighbor that sent me um, a letter today in the mail. He is not a member of the church. He is a member of a denomination. They're having a seminar at his congregation here locally in town. And they've invited us to come and be a part of it. I'm sure he sent that letter to dozens of others in the neighborhood. But I oppose those beliefs because those beliefs that they believe and what they practice in their worship is not in accordance with the word of God. And so therefore I'm going to contact that individual and I'm going to sit down, if he will, and I'm going to talk to him about the Bible. What does it say? This is what the Bible says. This is what you do. This is what the Bible says. Now, which is right and which is wrong? I know he's going to have a lot of man-made doctrines to come in. But to me, that's false teaching. We need to educate ourselves on this word so well that we can defend it. We know it. We knew enough to become a Christian. We know enough to teach someone else. Period. But we need to spend time with the word. That's how we increase our faith. Let's go on. And we won't finish tonight, I don't believe, but we'll go on to the next um, difficult verse. Second Samuel 11. 
How could David be a man after God's own heart? Well, let's take a look at a couple of things here before we have to end tonight, and we'll finish perhaps next week. I'm sure we won't get through with all of it. Well, we might. We might. 2 Samuel 11, the first 27 verses. How could David be a man after God's own heart? The conflicts concerning this passage. We read in 1 Samuel 13, 14, Samuel describes God's selection of David with these words. Jehovah has sought him a man after his own heart. Yet, 2 Samuel 11 describes David as an adulterer and a murderer. How could such a man be a man after God's own heart. Well, the context of this passage, at the time of the narrative in 2 Samuel, David had been a king for some time. He was safely enthroned in Jerusalem. He had moved his throne from Hebron up to Jerusalem, and his empire was firmly established. The crux of the difficulty of the passage focuses on David's actions in 2 Samuel 11, which shows him at his most evil hour. David was not swept off, uh, was not swept off his feet in a um, monetary surrender to evil. His actions suggested deliberateness. He deliberately did these things. He sent and inquired after the woman. Verse 3. Later, he sent messengers to take her. Verse 4. He deliberately contrived to cover his sin, verses 6 through 13. And he devised a strategy by which Uriah was killed in battle and wrote it in detail to Joab in verse 14. So the context of this passage. Since we've kind of reviewed David's actions and his greatness of iniquity, I think it's good to study more carefully the text which declares God's pleasure in him. And we see in 1 Samuel 3, 14. The Bible says, But now your kingdom shall not continue. Jehovah has sought him a man after his own heart. And Jehovah has appointed him to be a prince over his people because you have not kept that which Jehovah commanded you. Now these words were spoken by Samuel as God's spokesman. They were addressed to Saul. And as is frequently the case in the Bible, the actions of God are described in terms which sometimes man cannot really understand. Therefore, God is pictured as having sought him a man after his own heart. Notice the verbs are in past tense. It would be many years before David would actually become king. But the event was an accomplished fact in his mind. Basic, central, and fundamental. We use the term in the identical way when we say, let's go to the heart of the matter. When the heart of God is spoken of, it refers to that which is basic to his nature. We think immediately of his righteousness, his justice, his purity, and his love. A man after God's heart would be one who would be able to comprehend these qualities in God and, and, and fervently desire them for himself, looking to God as the one upon whom he was dependent for existence and growth. <clears throat> 
the concepts that are erroneous concerning the passage. Number one, the, word, um, the, the words, a man after God's own heart, were only spoken of David when he was a ruler. It was not a term meant to be descriptive of David's private life. There's something to, to command, something to commend, the, uh, command this view. I believe it fits well in the, in the context in which the statement was made. Samuel had described the actions of Saul, which had, had made him a poor king, and in contrast speaks of a man who would follow him as king. The objection, however, is the uh, biographical material about David found in Psalms and in First and Second Samuel, which suggests God's particular closeness to David, not only in public but in private life as well. In fact, God vowed his lovingness would never depart from David, Psalms 89. There it is, yes, 89, 33 through 35. Therefore, since the words were spoken in contrast to a description of Saul, they were meant to be understood only as a comparative to Saul. There is some merit in this view, I think. However, God's dealing with David and his posterity show there was something about David which God valued more than in a comparative sense. Many men would have compared favorably with Saul as far as a character is concerned, yet they were not the objects of God's promise, as was David. The statement about David was true at the time it was spoken, but it did not include David's future. There, I, I believe there's some merit in, in that position. However, God continued to deal with David in a very unique way, even after his disobedience. Although a woeful sinner, God continued to fulfill his plans through David and loved him greatly. So the concept here that is worthy of study and, and acceptance concerning this passage, David was not a man after God's own heart in, the ever, in ever aspect in any aspect of his life, but we know he sinned. Some of his sins are very, very, very bad. And they are enumerated in the scriptures. However, to carefully study David's life, it's a study, a study a life of amazing faith. We see him as a youth fighting, of course, Goliath because of his belief in God's power, 1 Samuel 17. Throughout his life, there was a, was a whole and, and um, sturdy uh, consistency, uh, if you please, uh, about David's desire to please God. And the last recorded mistake which David made was his numbering of the people of Israel, 2 Samuel 24, 1, and 1 Chronicles 21, 1 through 8. When all three forms of punishment were offered him by God, David chose the one which reflected his confidence in God, whom he loved. He elected punishment at the hand of Jehovah rather than at the hands of men, 2 Samuel 24, 14. David was a man after God's own heart, as best as we understand, because he loved God greatly, believed in him completely, and even with his own shortcomings, sought to serve him 
with a great and obedient heart. So those, with those words, we'll end tonight. The first bell is about to ring. And I want us to understand these things. And I want you to, to, to read and study them for yourselves. And you're welcome to my PowerPoint at any time. I believe that as Christians that we ought to thank the Lord every day, every moment of our life for this truth that he's given to us. I thank the man when I was a teenager in 1959 that taught me the gospel and baptized me. He's no longer with us now, but he did me the greatest service of all time. And aren't we glad we're Christians? And aren't we to rejoice because we have the Bible? Because we have the truth, all the truth and nothing but the truth. And it would serve us better to read and study more and to bring our Bibles when we come to this building and when we go to any service of the Lord or any Bible study in whatever fashion we want to bring the scriptures, whether it's electronically or, or in print. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for each other. Thank you for those that have joined us online and continue to join us online. Thank you, Father, for the Bible. We can't thank you enough. We are your servants, and we are sinners every day. Help us, Father, to realize our shortcomings and to correct them. We know that being a Christian isn't easy many times but we know we must live the Christian life regardless of the obstacles regardless of the consequences we must live the way you want us to live and we must teach others the truth and bring others to recognize the one faith that's found in your word and to act upon what they have read by becoming members and being baptized into Christ, becoming members of your body, of your kingdom. Help us, Father, to be more thankful every day for you, for your Son, for the greatest sacrifice of all time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.